All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of 1 Peter. In this session, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And Peter has just opened his letter with an introduction and greeting. It's an expanded intro and greeting that really introduced several key themes in the letter. We should be sure to keep in mind the original audience, that is, Christians in cities scattered throughout Asia Minor in the mid-60s A.D., and in ordinary letters of the day, after such an introduction and greeting, there typically be some sort of well-wish or prayer. Good health to you, they might say. Or may the gods bring you all sorts of blessing and favor and goodness. Well, in New Testament letters, that often becomes a prayer or a report of how the author is praying for them. What Peter does here is he begins with a prayer of praise that morphs into an encouragement from the salvation that they've been given. So this sets what Peter says about salvation into the context of praise or thanking of God for the salvation he's given. And the focus here is on the security and on the greatness of the salvation that God has given us. Here's what Peter says. First Peter Chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So notice how Peter begins. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is really a common Jewish way of praising God or thanking God. For example, you can find this throughout the Psalms, such as Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Psalm 103. Well, Jews typically, or very often at least, praised God this way. In fact, Jews often began the day with a series of blessings of God like this, what became the Amidah, the 18 blessings that Jews started the day with. So here, Peter is praising God, and what he's going to praise God for specifically is the salvation that he's given to his people. And what moved God to do that? Well, Notice Peter says, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. It was, it was God's mercy that moved him to uh, give us new birth. It was God's mercy that moved him to work out and grant this salvation. And mercy is the idea of taking pity on having compassion on. It's the idea of being moved to help somebody who desperately needs help. And so God was moved by mercy and compassion and pity for us human beings who needed desperate help and couldn't do it on our own. And notice, God doesn't have just a little bit of mercy. He doesn't have just a tiny bit of mercy. He has great mercy. And that God, who according to his great mercy, did this. And so uh, God, according to his great mercy, did what? What did he do? Well, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. This idea of being born again describes the new life that God gave us in Christ. What happens to us when we enter into Christ is so radical that it's like being born all over again. Uh, the New Testament uses other pictures or images for the same reality. One of the most common is resurrection, like spiritual resurrection. 
Paul in, for example, Romans 6 or Ephesians 2 can talk about how when we came into Christ, it was like going from death to life, being resurrected, right? There is some sort of real powerful, life-giving change that happens when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, a change so deep, so real, so powerful, so radical that here Peter can describe it as being born a second time, like being born all over again. And Peter got this way of describing this gift of new life straight from Jesus himself. If you recall, John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, Jesus had that interaction with the religious leader of his day, Nicodemus. And he said to Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's where Peter got this image, right from Jesus and Jesus' way of saying it. Like, when we become followers of Jesus, there's a change so deep that happens that it's like being born all over again. And Peter says here that uh, one of the things this new birth ushers us into is a living hope. We've been born again into a living hope, not a dead hope, but a real hope, a trustworthy and living hope, not a dead or false hope. And this word hope in English, I think, needs some clarification because in English, the word hope often means little more than a wish, right? Like, gee, I sure hope I get such and such, or gee, I sure hope it works out. And what we mean is we just wish it to, but we have no guarantees that it, is, that it will work out that way, and we're not sure that it will. But the, the word in the New Testament is much stronger. It almost means more like expectation. It refers to a future event that we're waiting to happen but it's going to happen for sure. It's it's something we can expect. It's definitely going to happen. We're just waiting for it to happen. And so we wait with great expectation and great anticipation for it to happen. That's hope. It's an it's a certainty. It's an expectation. Now, why is that? Why is this hope that we have been given in Christ certain and alive and for real and not just a wish? Well, notice what Peter says, that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our future hope. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. This hope is living because Jesus is alive. So Jesus showed us that death doesn't get the final word, that death is a defeated enemy, and thus our hope for life forever is guaranteed because of the resurrection of Jesus. Then in what follows, Peter goes on and actually briefly describes some of the content of this hope. What does this hope include? Well, he says it includes an inheritance. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says that we've been born again to a living hope to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so our living hope includes an inheritance. And this is 
apropos. It's really continuing the the new birth image. We've been part, we've become born again as part of a new family, God's family, and there's a great inheritance coming to all of God's sons and daughters. And what does this inheritance refer to? Well, it refers to all the things that God has promised to us as his children. Resurrection from the dead, eternal life, which is both not only a ongoing life, but a quality of life that far surpasses anything we, we've ever experienced in life to this time. So we have eternal life, resurrection, a world to come, a new heavens and new earth in which justice and righteousness prevails. Like Blessed are the meek, Jesus said, for they will inherit the whole earth. Like The whole earth is ours. There's going to be a brand new world. All things are going to be restored, and we're going to dwell with God and with Jesus forever and ever. This is all part of our inheritance. And notice the three words that Peter uses here to describe our inheritance. He says it's imperative. That is, it won't rot, it won't decay, it won't go away. Food spoils and has, has to be thrown out, but your inheritance doesn't. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. That is, it's pure. It's clean. It's like crystal clear water that's beautiful and clean and refreshing. That's the inheritance you're looking forward to. It's unfading, which again speaks to it not being temporary. It's permanent. Flowers fade, but your inheritance doesn't. That's the point. It's not going to fade away. Uh, And this inheritance, he says, is reserved in heaven for you. That is, it's kept safe and secure in the most secure place in the universe. In heaven, in God's realm, where God's will is always done, where God reigns supreme, right there, your inheritance is protected and secure and waiting for you. And not only is the inheritance secure and protected, but look how he describes Christians there in verse 5. Those who are in Christ are protected, he says, by the power of God through faith. Notice that. So our our inheritance is ready and waiting and secure for us, but those in Christ are protected and protected by the most powerful person in the universe, God himself, protected by the power of God through faith. So because of our faith in Jesus, we are protected by God's power. And the idea of protected is guarded or shielded. The world may ridicule, attack, malign, or even kill. But our future is secure and we'll still receive our inheritance because God is on our side, just as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So as long as we keep trusting in him, our future is guaranteed and secure. And so we are protected in Christ by the power of God through faith. And he says we are protected specifically for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice that, that we're protected for a salvation, for a deliverance and a rescue that is ready, poised and ready. It's all ready for us, and it's going to be revealed when the time is right, at the last time. Peter's very specific. He doesn't say last times, but the last time, on the last day, at the last moment, when God decides enough is enough, our salvation is all ready for us to receive our inheritance and to be ushered into everything that God has for his people. So with that then, 
Peter begins to describe how that affects us. So this is what God has done for us in Christ through his resurrection and through God's power. How does that affect uh, those who are in Christ? How does that affect us as his people? We'll look at verse 6. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. The opening of verse 6 says this, in this, and in this refers back to the entire set of ideas expressed in verses 3 through 5. In this means in this fact that you've been born again, in, in this that you've been promised an inheritance, in this that you have a living hope and are waiting eagerly for your ultimate salvation to be revealed, in this that you're protected by God's power, in all of that you greatly rejoice. And so what God has done and what God has promised and what is waiting and ready for us in heaven causes us here in the present time to greatly rejoice. And that word translated greatly rejoice isn't the usual word for rejoice or joy in the New Testament. This particular word means to celebrate. It's the kind of gladness and joy and celebration that goes along, say, with feasts and festivals and holidays where, man, everything's just wonderful and great and you're just celebrating, right? Well, that's what he says we do. That's how we live. It's this kind of celebration that's a constant theme of our life as followers of Jesus because of the future that we've been promised. Now, Peter is a realist. He's lived life long enough himself. He's experienced difficulty enough himself that he's not just all pie in the sky. He's a realist. He knows that current life isn't all fun and games and joy and happiness. So notice what he says. He says, we celebrate even though for a little while we have been distressed in this present world. And this word translated distressed literally is grieving. And he says this grieving is actually caused by various trials. That word various means manifold, lots of different kinds. There's all sorts of different hardships and trials that lead to grieving in this world. Death of loved ones, ridicule and harassment for our faith, sickness and the suffering that goes with it, broken relationships that ought not to be that way, struggling just to make ends meet in a fallen world, and heartache of various kinds. All these various kinds, these manifold different kinds of trials lead to grieving. But the grieving, Peter wants to make sure he emphasizes, is only temporary. He says it's for a little while that uh, you might now, you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while have been distressed by various trials. And so this grieving is only temporary. It's only for a little while because our future is secure, because the riches that God has promised to us, we can celebrate even now in the midst of all the different kinds of grief we might experience in life. In fact, Peter goes on to say that these trials and this grief has a purpose. It's not in vain. In verse 7, Peter connects the various kinds of trials we experience and endure to the image of testing and purifying and refining precious metals. That's the image he's going to use. And so we need to make sure we hear the language that Peter uses in connection with the image of testing, refining, and purifying precious metals. This is what he says, verse 7. He says, so that the proof of your faith, 
being more precious than gold, which perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation in Jesus. So Peter is using the metaphor of refining gold, and he's comparing how God uses our various kinds of trials to test, prove, and purify our faith. Notice how the verse begins with so that. This phrase states purpose or result. And so there's a purpose or a result to the trials and the grief that they bring. And the purpose is to prove our faith. Now, what does he mean by prove? This is where we need to make sure we hear Peter's words in the context of the image. Proof doesn't mean evidence. Like, you'll see God do some miraculous work, and now you have evidence for your faith. That's not what proof means here. Proof is a word that um, could be referred to the means of testing. This word dokimon in Greek could refer to the means of testing, i.e. fire for gold or metal. You would use fire to test and refine it. That was the means of testing. Or this word could refer to the result of the testing. In other words, that the gold now has been refined and purified and there's no impurities in it. There's no alloy in it. It's 100% pure 24 karat gold. That's the idea here of this word translated proof. So it means refining and purifying your faith through testing. All right. So the translation doesn't necessarily help us because we don't fully understand the language and the process of refining uh, gold or silver, perhaps, ourselves. So Peter's point is this. He, he's saying, we think gold is valuable. We call it a precious metal. It gets refined through fire, but it doesn't last forever. It doesn't hold its value, and in fact, it's not going to last forever and ever. Well, how much more valuable then is your faith that lasts forever? And when your faith has been tested and refined and purified so that it's 100% pure 24 karat faith, guess what will happen? It'll result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. Such faith will be honored by Jesus at his appearing. Such faith will give Jesus glory and honor at his appearing. So here's a whole nother reason we can rejoice even in the midst of our trials and our difficulties. Not only because we have this great future we're going to look forward to, but we know that even the difficulties and the grieving that we're going through can be used by Jesus to purify our trust in him so that there's no impurities in our allegiance to him. And that is a cause for rejoicing. And so, because of that, Peter goes on to emphasize this. He says in verse 8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. In other words, we didn't see Jesus the first time he came, and yet we love him. He hasn't appeared yet, so we still are waiting to see him. Nevertheless, we believe in him and we trust in him. And so even though we're operating by 
faith and not by sight, we greatly rejoice. And that's the same word that was used up above when he talked about greatly rejoicing. It's celebrate again. We live these lives with this sense of celebration, with joy that he says is even too great for words. Um, That's what inexpressible means here. He says, you greatly rejoice with joy. And that word joy there is the normal word for joy in the New Testament. So we celebrate with joy, a joy that's so great, it's inexpressible, it's too great for words, a joy that's so great, it's full of glory. It's a glory-filled joy. And glory is this idea of coming from God himself, full of God's glory. And so we can live our lives in the present, in spite of all the different kinds of hardships and grief we experience, and all the ways that may afflict our soul, we can live here and now with this incredible sense of joy and celebration because of what's promised to us in the future. And we know that God is even using the difficulties now to purify our trust and our faith in him. And then Peter goes on and says in verse nine, obtaining as a result of this faith, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of our souls. And so he says the goal and the outcome of all of this life of faith is the salvation, the rescue and the deliverance of our very souls. And by souls, he doesn't mean souls as uh, different from the body. He means souls in the sense of life. This word pasuke, which is the word translate soul, means soul or life. And it could refer to uh, the inner man as opposed to the outer man. But very often it just means the whole of you, your whole life, your whole personhood, everything that makes you, you. And so we now celebrate the salvation of our very lives now and forever. Our lives will be delivered from eternal ruin and despair, and we will receive an eternal inheritance from God our Father someday. Now, in verses 10 through 12 that follow this, Peter continues to describe how great this salvation is by pointing out that the prophets who predicted it eagerly sought to understand it and that angels themselves long to look in on these things. We'll save the details of those verses for next time, but just note that it's a further reinforcement of just how incredible and glorious and joy-giving this salvation is. And so it's really part of this section, but for the sake of space and time, we'll save it for the next section because it really sets up also what follows it. All right, now, before we wrap this recording up, let me just offer a little bit of a reflection. One of the main points here in this section is this, that we can live lives of overwhelming joy because of the incredible salvation that God has given us. Or maybe we could say that better by saying, we can live lives of great joy because God has planned a great future for us. We'll finally see Jesus face to face. We'll receive the glorious inheritance he has promised for us. We'll have life forevermore, resurrection life, just like Jesus' resurrection life. And so we live now celebrating and eagerly looking forward to what is to come. Hope, hope that leads to joy and celebration ought to be a critical, crucial mark of faithful followers of Jesus.